All right, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to Grace Church here at the Medina East Campus as we are continuing in a series. Uh, we actually started a few weeks ago now that we've been calling Behold, and uh, so like Steve mentioned just a moment ago, if you're a guest with us here today, if it's your first time here, man, we are so, so thankful that you're here, and welcome. Uh, we're, we're glad to have you as our guest, and uh, just to kind of catch you up to speed with what it is we've been talking about here in this series together, uh, in this series, Behold, we're basically having this conversation sort of through the Christmas season. And, uh, and really what sort of the goal is, if you missed the last couple of weeks, is we said that the goal of this series is really to, um, well, it's to behold Christmas. Uh, we said that as a church and as a community, uh, we want to take some time together throughout this series uh, to really kind of stop and behold um, Christmas. And here's what we mean by that. What we said is we said the word behold, uh, I think, is a pretty outdated term, right? My guess is that most of us probably don't use the word behold in our everyday language. And yet what we said is we said the word behold is actually a really significant biblical word, uh, that in the Bible, you're actually going to find this word behold. It shows up over a thousand times throughout the pages of scripture. And we said what's really fascinating is that this word, the word behold, shows up in an increased frequency around the birth of Jesus. And so in the Bible, when you read about the Christmas story, about the birth of Jesus, you see an increased frequency of this word, um, behold. And we said, here's what's real interesting about this word. We said that when you go back to the Bible and you look at the meaning of this word, it actually is a, a lot richer and deeper, I think, than we might tend to think. And so we've been looking at this definition together. Here's a, a definition of the biblical usage of the word behold. We said, biblically speaking, the word behold is a demonstrative term, and it literally means to fill up the eye. That's what it means. It means to fill up your eyes with something, which is a really interesting way to say it, isn't it? Because what is that saying about behold? Here's what it means. To behold something is not just to um, casually glance at it. Right? To behold something is not just to like pass by and look at it. To behold something is to fill up your eye. It is to gaze intently at something. It is to, uh, to deeply contemplate, to, to think through, to soak in something. That's what it really means to behold. And so whenever you're in the Bible, you see the word behold, it usually means this. The idea is pause. That's the idea. Stop. Pay attention. Don't miss this. And so it's, it's a very rich word in the Bible. We said we, we actually think that this is a wonderful title for the conversation that we're having. And here's why. Because Christmas is one of those things, and I think all of us have probably know this to be the case. Christmas is one of those things that it's real easy to be completely surrounded by the craziness of Christmas, right? It's real easy to get wrapped up in the, the traditions and the presents and all the trappings and the lights and all that stuff, which is so much fun, right? It's so easy to get wrapped up in all that and yet go through this whole holiday season without ever actually pausing and paying attention and not really beholding what it is that we're truly celebrating. It happens all the time. Right? It's real easy for us to do this. Go all the way through this season and never really stop and behold what it is that we're actually celebrating, the birth of Jesus and the significance and the implications of that in our lives. And so here's what we said. We said, because that's the case, what we want to do together as a church, what we want to do together as a community is throughout this crazy Christmas season, we actually want to carve out some time each week to do precisely this, to behold. We want to pause together, even right now, just to pause and to take some time to fill up our eyes with the birth of Jesus and think about the significance and the importance of that, to pay attention and to not miss it this year. And so that's what we're doing here together. And, uh, and, and by the way, if you were here the past couple of weeks, here's what we said. We said what's really interesting 
is that when you actually do that, when you, when you force yourself to pause and behold Christmas, we said what you find is actually really interesting. It's a little unexpected. We said that what you find is that Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is both more wonderful and wondrous than you might initially realize. And we said at the very same time, it's also more threatening than you might initially recognize. And by the way, if you missed the previous conversations in this series, I'd actually encourage you, you can go back and listen to those or you can watch those. All of that's for free. You can get that on our podcast or on our website and we'd encourage you to do that. But here today, what we're gonna do is we continue in this conversation as I wanna encourage you to grab your Bibles if you got them and to get, together we're gonna go uh, to Matthew chapter one as we continue beholding Christmas this season. We're gonna go to Matthew chapter one. So grab your Bibles if you got them. Let's go ahead and go over to Matthew chapter one. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and, uh, and so it should be relatively easy to find there. You can go ahead and just uh, find the book of Matthew. And um, let me just also say as well that if you um, are a person that doesn't own a Bible or didn't, didn't bring a Bible or doesn't have a Bible, just grab one of ours, and you can turn in those black Bibles to page 675. That's where you're going to find Matthew uh, chapter 1. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we actually really want you to have one. And so you can just take one of ours. If you don't own a like a physical copy of the Bible, just take one of ours and make that a gift from us to you. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1. Now, as you're flipping to Matthew chapter one, as a way to kind of kick off our conversation, I actually brought something with me. I don't know if you guys can see in the back, but I actually brought my toolbox with me. This is my toolbox up here. And uh, so I brought this quick confession uh, before I jump into this. So I am, um, I am not a handyman like by any stretch of the imagination. And I've never been good at fixing stuff. I've never been good at building things. And here's my confession. I am secretly envious of those of you who can. And I know, I know, in fact, even just looking around in this room, I know there are some of you here who are so good at that. You can fix, you're like Mr. Fix-It, you know, Mrs. Fix-It, you can fix whatever, you can build whatever, you're the jack-of-all-trades type. And I just need to admit to you that I secretly kind of envy you, and whenever I'm around you, I feel a little bit insecure. And that's true, because I always wanted to be that way. I always wanted to be like someone who could fix stuff and those type of things. And I kind of have the opposite thing going on, where if I touch something, I usually end up breaking it, or if I try to fix it, it gets worse. And so it's sort of of a sort of a, a bad a bad thing but I do own a toolbox I actually have one and I have some basic tools and I actually do use them every once in a while not successfully but I do use them every once in a while and the reason I brought my toolbox here today was because this past week I was thinking about something that I don't know if I've ever thought about before I don't know if you ever thought about this but I was actually thinking about the name of tools right the basic kind of all the, 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 the general tools I think all of us have, I was thinking about the name of tools. And did you guys ever notice that the name of tools, the name of the basic tools that we have in our toolboxes, are the most basic, practical, obvious names that you could give them, right? So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So my toolbox here, I brought a few basic things. So let me just, let me just start here. So this one, all right, not, not a trick question. I'm sure we all have one of these. What is this called? The hammer, right? We all know that. Now, what does this do? Hammer stuff. Right? That is the most basic, obvious name that you could get. I, can't, I can only imagine the process in which this was named. I imagine, you know, man, what, what are we going to call that thing, that hammer stuff? How about a hammer? Right? There you go. Must have been a guy who named this. Had to have been. Right? Super practical, super straightforward. Or how about this one? Start thinking about other stuff. What's this called? Just shout it out. Screwdriver. Screwdriver. What does it do? It drives screws into stuff. That's what it does, right? You call it 
what it is. Here's a, here's a couple other ones, see if you guys can help me out. I'm, not, I'm really not trying to insult your intelligence here. But uh, what about this one? What do we call this? A level. What's it do? Checks to see if stuff is? Level. Wow, right? What about this one? Does anyone know what this is called? This is a, kind of a tricky one. Stud fighter. What's it do? Find studs. And this one still works. So there you go, right? But you guys get it, right? It's like whoever named tools, it's the most basic. I love it. I love it. It's so practical. There's no ambiguity on this, right? The, the name of the tool is both a noun and a verb at the same time. I'm going to hammer with my hammer. I'm going to saw with my saw. I'm going to drill with my drill. Even if you think about it, the container in which we keep them. Someone was like, I need a box to keep my tools. How about a toolbox, right? And there you have it. And it's all just super practical, and it's all just kind of obvious, and that's the name of it. Now, now, some of you are thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with anything, and what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, well, here's why I tell you that, because I say all of that to make a very, very, very simple point, right? I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. You're all very smart people. But, but the reason I tell you that is to make this simple point, that what you call something, what you name something, is very significant because it says something about the thing that you name, right? And, and the reason that's important is because today, in Matthew chapter 1, we're actually going to see the story of the occasion where God names his son. God is going to name his son in Matthew chapter 1. And that, I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it did. So there you go, right? But, but God is going to name his son. And of course, listen, this is no spoiler alert. All of us know what God is going to name his son. We're all aware of what his son's name is. It's written on every Christmas card. It's in every Christmas song. We're all very, very, very well aware of what his name is. But I guess what I'm wondering this morning is not do you know what his name is. My, guess, my, my question is, have you ever beheld his name? Have you ever paused and paid attention to the significance of the name that God gave his son. Because I think what you're going to find is that it is deeply significant what God names his son. In fact, here's what we're going to do today. I want to talk about really just three things. And here's the three things that I want to look at together out of Matthew chapter 1. And that's this. I want to show you that, that in Matthew chapter 1, that his great name, the name that God is going to give his son, his great name reveals our greatest need and our great worth. Okay, so I just want to talk about those three things, about how this great name, the great name that God gives his son is a really important name. It's a very significant name because it reveals to us some, some things, and it reveals to us our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, and our great worth. So what am I talking about? Let's just start at the top. Let's talk about his great name. Okay, so... Like I said, Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see God naming his son. So let's take a look at this together. We're going to start off in verse 18. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And now let me, just, let me just pause here for a moment. My guess is many of us in this room are probably familiar with the Christmas story, and you're probably familiar with the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. It was a miraculous occasion in Jesus' birth. And so when Joseph, the Bible tells us, when Joseph found out that Mary, who at that time was his fiancée, and they were engaged to be married, the Bible said when he found out that she was pregnant, uh, Joseph, just like any of us, 
had no category for a virgin birth, right? That wasn't something that, that, you know, he just easily accepted, just like for any of us, we have no category to accept a miracle of that size. And so Joseph didn't either. And so my guess is, um, Joseph, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, my guess is that Mary probably explained to him, no, I've been faithful, and it's not what you think, and it's a miracle, and I'm gonna give birth to the Messiah, right? My guess is that Joseph, because he had no category to understand this, he probably thought that she was either lying or crazy. And so the Bible says that it was his intention to divorce her. He didn't wanna make a public deal about it. He, wanted, he didn't wanna like destroy her reputation, but he was like, I just, I can't, I can't do this. And so he was gonna get out of the relationship. Until verse 20, and watch what happens in verse 20. After he had considered this, leaving Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's gonna give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All right, so, so check this out. All right, so the Bible says Joseph's getting ready to leave Mary and that night he goes to bed and in a dream, an angel appears to him. And an angel comes and speaks to him and says, it's, everything, is, everything is legit, Joseph. This checks out, right? Mary is, is telling you the truth, and this is a miracle from God, and she is going to give birth to the Messiah. Now, in this passage, we don't have a whole lot of detail as to you know, what this dream looked like or how exactly this angel spoke to, to Joseph. We don't even know who the angel is, but I actually have a theory on this, by the way. Here's my theory. My theory is that the angel that probably appeared to Joseph most, most likely was probably the angel Gabriel. There's actually an angel in the Bible who's identified as Gabriel. And the reason I think that that's the case, and I'm not sure because the Bible doesn't say, but the reason I think that's the case is because, um, some of you might know this, in Luke chapter 1, which is another account of the birth of Jesus, we see an angel appear to Mary on a totally different occasion. And this angel comes to Mary and says, um, you, are, you, know, you have found favor in God's sight, and you are going to be the mother of the Messiah. You're going to raise God's son, right? And this angel that delivers this message is identified as Gabriel. That's who it is. And so my guess is, my guess is, this is probably the same dude. And I don't know, I can't be sure, but I'm thinking that's probably what's going on here. But here's what I think is so interesting, and I'll be honest with you, I never noticed this until this past week, and I thought it was so fascinating, that when you read on uh, both occasions in Luke 1 and in Matthew 1, Mary and Joseph are both visited by an angel, and the angel, when the angel comes to both Mary and Joseph, I never realized this, the angel delivers to both of them only one instruction. That's it. So the angel comes to Mary and says, you have, found, you, you have found favor in God's sight and you are gonna give birth to the Messiah. She freaks out. She's like, well, how's this gonna happen? He says, it's gonna be a miracle. And then he gives Mary only one instruction. And the same with Joseph. The angel appears and says, Joseph, everything checks out. This story is legit. And he only gives Joseph one instruction. And the angel, the angel that, that appears to Joseph and Mary gives both of them on two separate occasions the same instruction. There's only one instruction about raising this baby, about raising God's son, which to me, by the way, this is a little crazy to me. Like, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that, that if God was gonna bring his son into this world and he was gonna have earthly parents raise him, 
that there would be like a whole like list of very specific instructions that God would give these parents who had never raised any children before. Like, don't you think that'd be the case? Don't you think the angel would show up and be like, you know, you guys are gonna raise God's son. And so here's a bunch of rules. Like, number one, don't drop the baby savior on his head, right? Number two, no GMOs for the Prince of Peace, right? He has to be a gluten-free savior, right? You would think that there would be, like, all of you, you would think that there would be a manual for Emmanuel. Sorry. Uh, it's low-hanging fruit. I had to take it, so I'm sorry, right? But wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't you think that if God was entrusting his son to being raised by earthly parents, that there would be like some pretty serious stipulations and qualifications on, on the conditions in which he was to be raised. And yet, when God delivers a message to Mary and Joseph, he only gives one instruction, just one. And what is it? And here's what it is. Look, you gotta give him the name Jesus. You, you, you must name him Jesus. The angel says the same thing to Mary. God wants you to name his son Jesus. Now, this is wild to me. God looks and says, I don't care whose room he sleeps in. I don't care if you do bunk beds or not. Here's the thing I, here's the thing I really care about, his name. You don't get to name him. I name him. And his name, listen, his name that he needs to be known by for the rest of history, throughout literature, throughout the human story, 2,000 years later in Medina, Ohio, the name that he must be known by is Jesus. Now this, by the way, I think is not only interesting, I think it's really significant. It's really significant for two reasons. Here, here's the first reason. So back in this time, and not, not too dissimilar from today, it was always the right and the privilege of the parents to name the child. It was always there. And specifically back in this time, it was always the right of the father to name the child. And so, and so listen, when God comes in and says, you don't name him, I name him. And this is the name of my son, his name is Jesus. That's a pretty strong statement about this, about this Jesus. Because what it's saying is he's God's son. God's the one who names him. But the other reason this is so significant is this. Back in Bible times, when you would name somebody, it was actually a, a bit of a different process um, than, than how we name kids today. So, so you guys know today in our culture, when we name kids, like my wife and I are actually going through this right now. So, so we have three kids, we're expecting our fourth. And so we're going through the process right now of trying to identify and pick a name. And you guys all know that in our culture, it seems like when you pick a name, the way that you usually do that is you just pick something you like. That's sort, that's sort of how it works, right? We don't really deeply think through the significance behind the name and, and what it means. I mean, we do some of that, but I don't think that's like the guiding factor uh, in, that, 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 that causes us to name our kids one thing over the other. A lot of times we'll name our kids, you know, after a relative that we really love, like, oh, grandpa was named that, or we had an uncle named that, or sometimes we'll name our kids after a character on a show or a movie that we like. It's just what we like. It's just what we like, and that's cool. But back in Bible times, that wasn't the case. You see, when you named someone back in the Bible, you gave a lot of thought to the meaning of their name because the meaning of their name was to say something about their purpose. And by the way, specifically, when God names somebody, it's not just what he calls them. There's always a deep purpose. In fact, this happens a handful of times in the Bible. God names people. So, uh, for example, did you know this? The first person that God named in the Bible... Does anyone know who the first person God named in the Bible was? It's Adam. 
Genesis chapter one, God, or Genesis chapter two, I guess it would be. God names the first man and he names him Adam. And the name Adam, by the way, is not just like a title. It wasn't just what God called him. The name Adam literally means from the dust. That's what it means. And so when God calls him Adam, he's not just saying, this is the nickname I have for you. He's saying, this is actually part of your purpose in my plan. You're the first man. You're the first person. You are not born of a woman. You are born of the dust. You are made of dust, right? Or how about this one? In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Abram. And God intercedes in his life, and he renames him, and he calls him Abraham. What does the name Abraham mean? It's not just what God called him. The name Abraham means the father of many what is that? Well, what he's saying is, this is not just your name. This is also your purpose in my plan. Uh, you're going to be the one in which an entire nation is going to, the whole nation of Israel came out of Abraham, right? Or how about this one? Um, New Testament, a guy named Simon, disciple of Jesus. And uh, one day Jesus renames him. He renames him Peter. Does anyone know what Peter means? Peter means the rock. So before there was Dwayne Johnson, there was Simon Peter, right? And Peter was the rock. Now, why did he call him the rock? Was it because he was like totally jacked and had rippling abs? No, he called him the rock because he said, on you, I'm going to build my church. On, on your confession of faith, Peter, you're gonna be like a foundation. You're gonna be like a rock. I'm gonna build my church off of that, right? So, so when God names something, He's not just calling it that to call it that. It's more than just a title. It says something about its purpose. Now, here's why that's so important. Because when God sends his son into the world, the name that he is eager to give him, the name that he intercedes both to Mary and to Joseph and says, you gotta call him this, the name that he says best encapsulates his purpose and the reason that God has sent him is this. He says his name has gotta be Jesus. Jesus, that's his name. That's the great name that God chose to give his son. And he was sure, made sure, that that was the one instruction he gave to Mary and Joseph. Now, if you can start to understand the significance and the weightiness of that, I think you'll begin to understand this next thing, and that's this, that his great name, you're gonna find, part of the reason God named him this is because it reveals our greatest need. It reveals our greatest need. Some of you are like, what are you talking about with that? Well, by this point, my guess is some of you are probably starting to wonder, what does the name Jesus mean? What does the name Jesus mean? Well, let me just tell you, the name Jesus is actually a Greek version or a Hellenized version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeshua is the name. And the name Joshua or Jesus actually comes from two words that are put together. It is Yahweh saves. And so what is his name? Here's what his name is. His name is the Lord saves that's what Jesus' name is. Jesus means the Lord saves. That's what it means. That's what it means. As a matter of fact, Matthew, if you go back to our passage, the Bible tells us here, goes on to clarify why Jesus came. Look what it says. The, the angel says, you're to give him the name Jesus, and then he clarifies, because he's going to save people from their sins. What's his name? The Lord saves. Why? Because he's going to save people from their sins. Very clear, right? Very clear. He's like, this is the name that he has. His name is the Lord saves. Now, here's, here's again why I find this so interesting. Um, because, you know, some of you guys know this. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus has a lot of titles. Throughout the whole Bible, Jesus has a lot of titles. So, um, Jesus is called the Wonderful Counselor. He's called the Mighty God. He's called Everlasting Father, right? Uh, Jesus, Jesus is called uh, the Word Made Flesh. He's called the Christ. He's called the Son of Man, Right? He's called I am. 
There's a lot of things Jesus has called. He's got a lot of titles. He's got a lot of titles, but he's only got one name. Name. See, I got a lot of titles, right? Um, tons of them. <laughs> I'm pastor, which I actually prefer uh, honorable bishop, uh, reverend. So you just call me out. Uh, just kidding around. Um, I'm dad, right? I'm husband. I'm, I'm mister. I got, I got titles, but I got a name. My name's, my name's Tony, right? Jesus has titles. He's got a name. And God says that's his name. That's his name. That's what I want him to be known, known through all time, through all literature, through all history. His name's Jesus. Now, here's why I think that's so significant. Let's kind of go back to, to um, our illustration previously for a moment. And I just want you to consider with me. Again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but this is, this is a hammer. And, and the thing about this, this, this tool, I don't even know who, someone got this for me as a gift. I don't even remember who it was. But the thing about this tool is that, that it is a hammer, and it's called a hammer because it hammers stuff. Right? That's what it is. And, and everything about this tool about its design, about um, the components that are used in it, the materials. Everything about it was carefully thought through towards that end. Right? It's made to hammer, and it's, it's made for that. And so everything, like it has a rubber handle so it doesn't slip out of your hand because when you're hammering stuff, you don't want it to slip out of your hand. It has a fiberglass um, Stem, I don't know what to call it. I'm not a, again, I'm not a tool guy, right? Fiberglass, why? Because it doesn't break easily. It's strong. It has a steel, you know, uh, steel, a steel head on it, and it's got, you know, this crowbar thingy on the back. And what, what is all that about? Well, some of you guys who know tools are just laughing. You're like, you don't know what you're talking about right now. And I don't, but somebody does. And, and you know what I'm talking about, though. Everything is towards that end. Now, let me ask you a question, all right? Just a real simple question. Could I use this hammer as a bottle opener? Yeah, totally. This, this, could bot, this could open bottles. I could use the back end, just pry off the, or I guess you could also use the front end if you want, just smash the top off, depending on how many drinks you had. That might be a thing, right? And uh, so yeah, you could, could, let me ask you a question. Could you use this as a toothpick? Uh, if you were a man, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, would it, be, would it be in a very effective toothpick? Well, I don't really know. Whatever, but yeah, sure. I mean, you could use it that way. You could use it for a bunch of things. Right, now, let me ask you this question. Would you ever call this a bottle opener? Would you call it a tooth? Would you be like, hey, hey, man, uh, pass me that bottle opener over there? No. Would you be like, hey, man, can I borrow your toothpick? Which I don't know why you'd ever ask that question anywhere. <laughs> borrow your toothpick. You could just have it, right? <laughs> but like, no, no, no. Why? Because it's a hammer. And to, and to call it anything else but a hammer is to completely misunderstand its purpose and what it's used for. Now listen, here's what I'm going for, and this is, I hope this is making sense because I'm being kind of silly. But listen, we can call Jesus a bunch of things. You can call him a bunch of things. And people do, and we do. You could call Jesus, for example, you could call him a great moral example. And man, what a great moral example of how to live and, and, and we should love each other and love God like Jesus did. He's a great moral example. We could look at Jesus, we could call him uh, an excellent teacher. Wow, what a great teacher. He was spellbinding, man. He could draw crowds. What an excellent teacher. We could call Jesus, um, we could call him a guru. Like, oh, he's a guru, man. A lot of religions are built off of him. A lot of, a lot of different you know, types of, you call him a philosopher, you call Jesus a revolutionary. Call him all of those things. And is that true? Is Jesus those things? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
right? He's a, is he a good teacher? Yeah, he's a great teacher, the best. Is he a revolutionary? Absolutely. Is he a guru? I guess by like text, textbook definition, sure. But listen, to call him all of those things and to not understand him as the Lord who saves you, to call him all these other things but to not understand him this way is to misunderstand him totally, right? To call him these, all these other, he's a good teacher, he's a moral guy, he's the example that I follow, and not to call him the Lord who saves you from your sin is to call his name a sham because that's his name. His name is Jesus. That's what he came to do. And that name, when God gave him, God was jealous to give him that name because that is who he is. And listen, here's the thing, all right? When you begin to understand that, what you begin to realize is that God is helping us, not only, he's not just sending his son, but he's also helping us understand what our greatest need is. And what is our greatest need if his name is Jesus? Here's our greatest need. Here's your greatest need. Here's my greatest need, according to the Bible and according to God. Our greatest need is that we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sins and from our inability to be able to, 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 to make ourselves somehow a pleasing to God or to make ourselves somehow acceptable to God. We need saved. We need saved. And listen, here's the thing, all right? His name is not the Lord assists. His name is not the Lord you know, helps. His name is not the Lord instructs because we don't, we don't need help. We don't need advice. We don't need education. That's not, I mean, that's, that's not our greatest need. What is our greatest need according to God? We need saved. We need saved. Man, and I'll tell you, if you think about it, you know, last week we said this. We said that, um, we said that when you truly behold Christmas, it actually requires that you have to admit something about yourself. And we said, quite honestly, it can be a little threatening. And, and if you think about it, to call Jesus, Jesus, the Lord saves, is actually a little threatening. Why? Because it requires you have to admit something about yourself. What do you have to admit? That your greatest need is that you need to be saved. That we, every single one of us, that we are all moral failures, and that the greatest need that we have is for our sins to be forgiven, and that we can't do that ourselves. And I just tell you, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's not, that's not, a, that's not a very endearing thing to say. But when we call him Jesus, that's what we're calling him, the Lord saves. I like the way Max Licato put it. He said it this way. He said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent a savior. That's what we needed. We needed someone to save us. You see, you gotta understand that this baby in our manger scenes at home grew up to be a man who died on the cross for our sins. He came to die. He came to save. Because that's, that's what his name means. And that, that, I think if you can start to understand how his great name reveals our greatest need, that leads me to this third thing. And, I just, and I'll end with this last one, but I think this one is so important, maybe the most important, and that's this. It also reveals to us, his great name reveals our greatest need, and at the same time, it reveals our great, great worth. It reveals your great worth, your great worth. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know not, not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're probably aware that one of the baseline teachings of Christianity 
And, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this might actually be helpful for you. One of the baseline teachings of Christianity is something called um, sin nature or the sinful condition of humanity. Basically, what the Bible says in no uncertain terms is that our greatest need is to be saved from our sins, that all of us are sinners. And so I'll just give you a few examples. Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, or that's Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 says that we were lost in our transgressions and sins, that we were once enemies of God, alienated from him. Bible's super clear on this. Every single one of us are lost in our sin. And we, we like to say it this way here at Grace Church. We are more messed up than we think we are. You are more messed up than you think you are. I am more messed up than I think I am. But here's the problem. Okay, the problem is that's all true. That's all true. The Bible's real clear about that. But the problem is a lot of times we stop there. We stop there. And we come to the conclusion that that must mean we're worthless. Now, you're a sinner. You're a wretched sinner. You can't get it right. You're a moral failure. Therefore, you're worthless. Right? You're just a useless sack of garbage. Merry Christmas. Right? And, and, and we feel like that's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is just walking around and saying, oh, I stink. I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. And let me just say, to stop there is to absolutely misunderstand Christmas. Totally miss it. Because what does Christmas tell us? What does Jesus, the Lord saves, reveal to us? Here's what it reveals. You're incredible worth to God. You're incredible worth. Um, I'll put it this way. So one of my favorite Christmas songs, in fact, I'll say it, I'll admit it, it's my favorite Christmas. I have a favorite Christmas song. I know some people are afraid to admit that, but I do, I really do. And uh, it's Oh Holy Night. And the reason that's become my favorite Christmas song is because I don't even remember how long ago it was, probably about a decade ago or so, there was one, there was one lyric, one line in that song that so captured my attention. And I just tell you, every time I hear it, I, I get chills when this line, when this line hits because it's, it's been so powerful. Let me just, I'll just read it to you. You guys are probably familiar with it, right? Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Okay, so we all know that. Here's the line, catches me every time. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Now, what's that mean? Uh, it means that we're more messed up than we think we are, that we're lost in our sins and we don't know how to get out. And we're, we're pining, we're yearning for something to change. And look at this next line. I love this. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Man, I remember when I first, when I first kind of paid attention to that, I was like, huh, what a fascinating, what a fascinating line. And the more I thought about it, you know what's interesting? The more I agreed with it. And the more I think I understood what the author of this song meant. And you know what I think he meant? Here's, here's what I think he meant. Let me put it this way. There's a parable in, uh, in the New Testament. Jesus tells a story. And actually, he tells three stories. But I just want to consider one of them for a moment. Jesus tells a story to a group of people who were really frustrated. They were infuriated with him because he was hanging out with sinners. And so this group of people were like, why are you hanging out with those worthless people? And so Jesus goes on to give these parables, three parables in Luke 15. One is about a lost sheep, one is about a lost coin, and one is about a lost son. And basically, the reason that Jesus tells these stories is because he's trying to explain to these people why he came and what his purpose was. 
And I want you to notice what he says in one of these stories. Here's what Jesus says about, about, about why he came. He says, suppose there was a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of them. Doesn't she, look at what he says, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. So Jesus looks at these guys who are like, why are you hanging out with these worthless people? And says, Jesus says, you, you know why? He's like, let me, tell you, let me tell you a story. There's a woman, she had 10 coins and she lost one. Now look at, look at this language. He says, so what does she do when she loses it, man? He says, here's what she does, man. She lights a lamp. Look at the intentionality. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully, man. She warrants an all-out search. And then what does she do when she finds it? She's like, dumb coin, hate that thing, whatever. No, what does she do? She rejoices. She's like, yes. And she calls all of her friends. And she says, we're having a party. We're going to have a party. Because the thing that I lost, I found, and it's so precious to me. And by the way, it's the same outcome with the lost sheep and the same outcome with the lost son. Now, what's the point? What's the point that Jesus is making? I, I put it this way in my notes. If you're, if you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot this down. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. The intensity of the search reveals the value of the item lost. Did you guys ever notice this before? That you will, that the intensity in which you search for something that you lost will reveal to you how, how, how valuable that is to you. So I got, I told you guys I got three kids and one on the way. And did you guys ever notice with little kids how there's like a, there's always like a blanket or a stuffed animal that becomes like the favorite, it becomes the one and it becomes the one that they, they have to have to go to bed and they, they can't sleep without it and it gets loved to death and it's like the, it becomes the thing. It has, it's the one that has the nickname. So it's like the blankie or the bink bink or the, it'll, it'll make a grown man talk like a child, right? It's just like that thing. So my son, some of you guys have kids and they, and they have one of those. My, my middle son had, has one of these. So he had, um, he got this little stuffed animal dog and get this, he named him, this is crazy, he named him Robin the Super Pup. That was the dog's name. And you could never just call him Robin. You always had to give his full name, Robin the Super Pup. And that was my, so he fell in love with Robin the Super Pup. Robin the Super Pup quickly became the one, right? He was the one stuffed animal he could not part with. He would, uh, couldn't go to sleep without Robin the Super Pup, had to have Robin the Super Pup all the time. And my son loved Robin the Super Pup, and he still loves Robin the Super Pup. And because he loves him so much, he's always a little dirty because he goes everywhere, right? He's always, he's kind of tattered. He's got some torn pieces on him. He's got broken pieces and like his eyes a little broken because he's just been loved really well. So anyway, uh, a while ago, my family and I were going to go out of town and we left town and we, we were staying at a hotel room in a different state. And of course, my son had to bring Robin the super pup because that, you know, he couldn't sleep without him. So we went to this hotel, had Robin the super pup. We ended up coming back home. And as we were unpacking everything, uh, my son was like, dad, where's Robin the super pup? And we were like, oh, no. And so we, we went on an all-out search. And let me just tell you, we looked everywhere. So we did, we did like this woman. We, we lit a lamp. Uh, we didn't actually have a lamp. But we, we turned on every light. Right? We swept the house. We searched carefully. We looked everywhere. Looked in every bag. Looked in every, you know, everywhere you could look in the house. Could not find Robin the Super Pup. So I was like, well, maybe it's in the minivan. Went out to the minivan. Tore the thing apart. Tore the minivan, looking for Robin, couldn't find Robin. So we could not, we could not find Robin the super pup. 
So my wife and I are like, he's got to be at the hotel room. He's probably back in a different state, and he's back at that hotel. So we called the hotel, and we were like, uh, you know, hey, did you guys happen to see, you know, this, this kind of like ratty, stuffed animal dog thing, kind of looking thing, <laughs> you know? And they're like, no, we haven't, we haven't seen it. And we're like, oh, my gosh. We're like, well, we're like, if you find this, would you please call us? We will pay whatever it takes to get him sent back, or we'll drive, we'll drive, we'll, we'll drive hours to come pick this thing up. Like, we will do whatever it takes to get this stinky, you know, dog back into our, our house. And you can imagine my son was absolutely distraught. Rob and the super pup was with many tears. And so anyway, I mean, weeks go by and months go by and my son keeps bringing it up. Robin the super pup, Robin the super pup. My wife and I even tried to replace Robin. We even went to the store and tried to get a new Robin the super pup that looked similar. But my son was like, what is this imposter? This is not Robin the super pup. And he wouldn't have it, right? And we were like, it's not working. So anyway, get this, a year later, one year later, we were getting ready to, to leave and go somewhere and we were getting out the luggage and wouldn't you know, in this weird, obscure pocket in one of our pieces of luggage, there tucked in was Robin the Super Pup. And so we pull this, this thing out and my wife and I saw it and we're like, it's Robin the Super Pup. And so we're like, we're like, Leland, that's my son's name. We're like, Leland. And he's like, what? You know, because he had been sad for a whole year. And we're like... <laughs> Like, Leland, he's like, what? We're like, guess what we found? And he's like, what? We're like, Robin the super pup. And he was just, and let me just tell you, there was great rejoicing in the Levigny household because what was lost had been found, right? And, and listen, let me just say this. If I, if I had Robin the super pup with me here this morning and I just, I just held him up and said, hey, what's this worth to you? You'd be like, that thing? dirty, tat, you'd be like, uh, nothing. You'd be like, don't even give it to the goodwill. It's not even good enough to be at the goodwill. But let me just tell you, to my son, that is invaluable. We would drive across the tri-state area to get that dog. We would do, we would go to great lengths to find, why? Because the intensity of the search reveals the value of the item lost. Now, now, that's a silly example, but I want you just to hear me for a minute, all right? Hear me on this one. When God saw that we were lost and that we needed to be saved, when he saw that we had rebelled against him and we had turned our backs on him and that we were morally incapable of fixing ourselves, did God just say, forget it, not worth it. You know what? I'm just going to make a new one. Let me just go to a different planet. I'll make a new humanity. Not a big deal for me. Made the first one in six days. I can make another one if I wanted to. Is that what he did? When God, when God saw that we had went our own way, that we had turned our back on him, God just say, you know what? Forget them. Forget them. Go ahead. If that's what you're going to do, just go ahead. Good luck. Is that what he did? No. The Bible says that he warranted an all-out search. And let me just ask you a question. To what lengths did he go? How, in, how intense, to what, to what intensity did, did his search take? Now, how about this? The creator of heaven and earth left heaven and came here and became a man. Jesus Christ the very word who spoke all things into existence, 
took on flesh, was born in a manger, and died on a cross. And man, I'm just telling you, the intensity of the search, the lengths in which he went for us reveals to when he appeared, the soul felt its worth. Man, do you know how, how much you are worth to him? You know how valuable you are? Man, Jesus reveals that. The, the lengths that the Lord has went to to come and find you and to rescue you reveals to you your great worth. And so, yeah, yeah, Christmas tells us that our greatest need is to be saved from our sins, that we are all sinners and we are morally incapable of saving ourselves. And that's not an easy message, but it also tells us something wonderful. And what's that? Oh, you're worth more than you can imagine because God loves you, not because of what you do or how you earn your way to him. He loves you because he, you're worth something because he loves you and his love is on you. So I think when you begin to understand this, you understand that his great name, the name of Jesus, reveals to us our, great, our greatest need and our great worth. I'm going to ask the band to come up and uh, as they kind of settle in and as we kind of close things down, I, I want to just sort of end with one final thought. You know, we, this is something we've been saying every week in this series. We said that when you really behold Christmas, what you find is that it requires that you admit something about yourself you have to recognize something about God and then you have to respond to the implications of that in your life. And so I just want to think about that. If we truly call him Jesus, if that's what we really call him, the Lord saves, what does that mean? Well, it means you have to admit something about yourself. What do we have to admit? Here's what we have to admit. Every single one of us, our greatest need is to be saved from our sins. We're all more messed up than we think we are. I am more messed up than I think I am. You are more messed up than you think we are. And my greatest need is to be saved from my sins. We have to admit that. Not the easiest thing to admit. But it also means that I have to recognize something about God. What do I have to recognize about God? If his name is the Lord saves. Well, here's what I need to recognize. That I am, you are so valuable to him. That you warranted an all-out search. That God himself left heaven and came to earth to find you. Because he loves you. And I think, I think that if you can understand those two things, that you are more messed up than you think you are, and you are worth more than you could ever imagine, I think if you can understand both of those things, what's going to happen is that that's going to start to show up in your life in very practical ways. So let, let me give you an example of what I mean. I think, I think what happens when you begin to realize this is that it begins to change the way you view yourself, and it starts to change the way you view others. So let me explain what I mean. I think when you come to recognize that your greatest need is to be saved and you're more messed up than you think you are and that you're more valuable and worth more than you can imagine, what happens is it starts to change the way you view yourself. It eliminates both pride and insecurity, both. You're like, what do you mean? Well, think about it. What does pride say? Here's what pride says. Pride says, I'm awesome and I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. That's what pride says. And Christmas would say, that's not true. That's not true. You can't save yourself. The Lord saves. He has to do it. It's by his effort and by his initiative. So it eliminates pride. But at the very same time, it eliminates insecurity. Because what's insecurity say? Here's what insecurity says. I'm worthless. I'm worthless. I'm good for nothing. And Christmas would say, don't you dare say that about yourself. God would not go to this incredible length if that was the case. And so what it does is it frees you, it liberates you from both pride and insecurity. It allows you to view yourself realistically, to view yourself the way that God views you. 
At the same time, it also changes the way you view others. Why? Because I think when you start to realize that you're more messed up than you think you are, but you're more valuable than you can imagine, it's gonna help you realize that that's true about everybody else. And so listen, those people in your life, those people at work, your coworkers, those people in your family, those people that you're gonna be sitting around the table with at dinner during Christmas, they are more messed up than they think they are. And some of you are like, I know. I've been trying to tell them for the past three years, right? And they are, and they are, and you are, and I am. But at the very same time, they're worth more. They're worth so much to God than you could ever believe. And when you begin to understand that about somebody, it allows you to see them correctly. It empowers you to love them. It empowers you to show grace to them. It empowers you to drop any you know, unrealistic expectations that you would have. It allows you to be patient. It allows you to forgive. It allows you to not hold bitterness in your heart because you can love them the way that God has loved you. And so when we really behold Christmas, we see that it transforms us. It changes the way we view ourselves. It changes the way we view others. And really, it changes the way we view God. It allows us to live in the way he's called us. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us together here today. And thank you, God, that you were eager to let us know the name of your son. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, it is the greatest name, Jesus. The Bible says that by that name, the name of Jesus, there's no other name under heaven and earth that a person is saved. That's the name we call out to, Jesus. What a great name. The Bible says that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There's power in that name. It's a great name. It's a great name. And Jesus, your name reveals to us not only who you are, but it reveals a whole lot about us. It reveals that that God, our greatest need is that we need to be saved and it reveals to us uh, our great worth to you. And that you would span heaven and earth, that you would come here to rescue us. You didn't just leave us to our own devices. You came and you rescued us. And God, we're grateful. We're eternally grateful for that. So Father, thank you for uh, what you've done for us in your son, Christ. And we just wanna ask these things and lift these things up to you in that great name, in the name of Jesus, amen.